Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, free to listeners and with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy our podcast, all we ask is that wherever you listen, kindly follow or subscribe and leave a review. Please note that Season 2 contains some limited descriptions of physical violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and this is The Chloroform Capers, Part 4 drawing blood. Jane Croboth was jolted from her deep slumber into semi-consciousness by a sudden multisensory intrusion, starting with the sensation of a wet rag over her face and a sweet chemical odor. As her eyes opened and she gasped for breath, she became fully awake and terrified by the visage of the dreadful vampire-like monster standing over her with his arms bearing down on a cloth over her nose and mouth. Jane tried to scream, but the sound was smothered. She resisted as best she could, but her attacker was tall, six foot two, and strong. By twisting and turning her head and body, Jane managed after a minute to momentarily get out from under the cloth and take a fresh breath. But the vampire promptly took a pillow and began to smother her with it, using all of his weight. Small in stature, but in sturdy physical condition, Jane then tugged on the pillow and lifted her head into such a position that a corner of her mouth edged out from under the pillow touching the attacker's index finger. Seeing an opportunity, Jane jerked and wriggled her head slightly more, flexed her jaw, and bit down hard, drawing blood from the vampire's finger and causing him to loosen his grip. She pried herself free in that instant and ran to the landing on the second floor. But... Kurt, the vampire, was right behind. He tackled Jane near the banister overlooking the main floor, which was 15 feet below. Kurt punched her in the face and hoisted her up in an attempt to throw her over the banister. She struggled and scratched him in a fight for her life as her attacker made successive tries to send her plummeting over the railing. At one point in the encounter, Jane screamed out, I'm a mother. I have two kids. I've had the worst damn year of my life. And then, suddenly, as quickly as the vampire had appeared at the house on Terrell Road, darting downstairs for the front door and fleeing on foot, he was gone. Jane was injured and shaking badly, but still very much alive. Jane grabbed the house phone to call for police, but it was dead, 
the line having been cut. She scrambled to find her cell phone. It was about 10 past 4 a.m. when Jane called 911 and told the dispatcher of a man wearing a vampire mask who had attacked her and then run out the door after she fought him off. Police arrived at her home quickly. Though unable to identify her assailant, Jane was able to describe him as tall, apparently white, and wearing a gray hoodie. She also explained that she'd bitten his finger hard and it might be bleeding, though he'd been wearing latex gloves. The information was quickly broadcast throughout police wires in Charlottesville and Albemarle County. It turned out that, although Kurt Kroboth appeared to have planned every detail of the attack, down to the mask, gloves, and chloroform, and down to cutting electric and phone connections, he had not put so much effort into an exit strategy. He came to the house on foot, so he had no car to escape in. His house was miles away, though police later surmised that, being a regular jogger, Kurt could have run much of the way to the Terrell Street acreage using bike and nature trails, including through Charlottesville's McIntyre Park. Perhaps Kurt planned there would be plenty of time to dispose of evidence and jog home after quickly subduing Jane and faking her suicide. But instead, of course, Kurt had fled in a panic. At least the first part of his journey back home must have been at a vigorous pace, starting through the nearby woods and then through suburban streets, because it was not long before Kurt reached Angus Road, near the intersection of the two most prominent Charlottesville thoroughfares, Route 250 and Route 29, it was there that he caught the attention of a police officer who noticed a tall white man wearing a gray hoodie who seemed nervous and out of place between 4 and 4.30 in the morning. The officer called for backup. Another squad car promptly arrived, along with Albemarle County Detective Philip Giles. Giles, an eight-year veteran of the Albemarle Force, after having previously served eight years as a patrolman in Charlottesville, took charge. He and the officers noticed specks of blood on the hoodie and a very red and swollen finger on the man's right hand. Although Kroboth declined to answer questions, he cooperated as police asked him to hand over the pack that was clipped around his waist. He stood quietly by as the pack was searched, revealing one latex glove, a small flashlight, a knife, and a jar of a liquid with a chemical odor. More police were summoned to comb the surrounding neighborhood, and it was not long before they found a vampire mask and a torn piece of a latex glove in a trash can. Kurt Kroboth was read his rights and placed under arrest.
When Detective Giles informed Jane Kroboff, who was being treated at University of Virginia Hospital for a broken nose and some bad bruises, she immediately thought of her children, who had been spending the night at Kurt's house. Police raced over to St. Clair Avenue, where they found a car registered to Kurt, parked in front of the home. They managed to get in and found both boys confused after being awakened, but unharmed. After Jane was released from the emergency room, though still reeling from the shock of the evening, she was reunited with her children, whom she was very glad to see. Meanwhile, police searched Kurt's house, where they readily discovered Jane's last will and testament prominently open on his desk. Created well before they contemplated divorce, the will named a sole beneficiary, Kurt Kroboth. Police also collected other evidence, including Kurt's computer. When it was later analyzed, it would reveal a number of website hits for, among other things, chloroform. Again, Lots of advanced planning by Kurt, but no exit strategy. And further investigation would reveal the report filed by Officer Phil Waffle, based on the information provided to him by Michael Ayers, who you may remember as the man Kurt attempted to hire to kill Jane Kroboth. Ayers was very cooperative when police contacted him, and indicated he was ready and willing to testify against his former, quote, friend. Kurt retained the services of a prominent Charlottesville law firm, St. John, Bowling, and Lawrence. Named partner Francis Lawrence took on the case, assisted by his associate Rhonda Quagliana, who herself would become a partner in the firm years later. After spending months reviewing the evidence and speaking with their client, Kurt's attorneys advised him of the best strategy. Cop a plea. Negotiations took place, and in the first week of May, a deal was reached where the prosecution would eliminate five of the charges on which the defendant had been indicted, including solicitation to commit murder, and Kurt Kroboth would plead guilty to just two of the charges, attempted murder and breaking and entering with intent to commit murder while armed with a deadly weapon. Sentencing was scheduled for a hearing to take place before Judge William Shelton three months later on August 2nd. Done deal. Or so it seemed. Well before sentencing, Kurt concluded that his attorneys had advised him poorly, and he decided to request that he be able to withdraw his guilty plea. When Kurt and his lawyers showed up on August 2nd for what was originally supposed to have been his sentencing hearing, Mr. Lawrence and Ms. Quagliana asked the judge to allow them to withdraw from representing the defendant. 
without going into details that could prejudice their client, the attorneys explained that they could not ethically continue with the case because they had become potential witnesses. Judge Shelton granted the request, and Kurt Kroboth suddenly needed to find a new lawyer. Well, Kurt was furious at this outcome, and he hand-wrote a letter from his jail cell to the judge. He claimed that the lawyers had taken his case intending just to make a quick and easy buck by convincing him to cop a plea. Quoting from his letter, They were clearly occupied by other cases and gave mine minimal attention to the point of failing to investigate a key piece of evidence, despite my pleas to do so for three months. To this day, it is not clear what evidence Kurt was referring to, but he explained that he was now in the nearly impossible situation of having to find new counsel while locked in jail, even more difficult because, as he put it, his attorneys had poisoned the well with other Charlottesville area lawyers who might otherwise represent him. Kurt's bottom line was an unusual request for the judge to require another lawyer at the same firm to represent him, a lawyer whose name you are sure to recognize, Cheryl Higgins, at that time a partner at St. John Bowling and Lawrence, the very same Cheryl Higgins who would later become an Albemarle County Circuit Court judge and preside over the case where Mark Weiner was convicted of abduction. In the end, after it became clear that Higgins would not be representing him, Kurt was able to find a different, very capable attorney, David Heilberg, a 1979 graduate of Washington and Lee Law School, whose decades of experience included work as an assistant Commonwealth's attorney and a 10-year appointment as acting Commonwealth's attorney to serve as a special prosecutor of certain cases in Charlottesville and surrounding counties. Heilberg was able to clarify some things with his new client and convinced him to keep to the original plea agreement. The new lawyer also obtained a continuance on the sentencing that would allow him to work with Kurt to locate and prepare witnesses who could help make the case for a relatively lighter sentence. Meanwhile, Jane Kroboth had filed a civil lawsuit against her now former husband seeking $750,000 in compensatory and punitive damages, citing conduct that was, quote, atrocious and utterly intolerable in a civilized society, unquote, the suit claimed Jane had suffered, quote, physical pain, sleep loss, discomfort, and mental anguish, and also that she was entitled to compensation for medical and mental health bills incurred for her and for the children. The lawsuit would not proceed until the criminal prosecution was finally resolved. 
Jane also threatened to file a different kind of lawsuit, this one against the city of Charlottesville. Having learned about Michael Ayers and what he'd reported to Officer Waffle about Kurt's effort to have her murdered, Jane became convinced that the whole nightmare scenario could have been avoided if the Charlottesville police had followed up and, at the very least, warned her. Indeed, Michael testified to this effect at a preliminary hearing in the criminal proceeding against Kurt. His very words were, they could have prevented this. Ultimately, the sentencing hearing for Kurt Kroboff did not take place until the following year, May 9th of 2006. On that date, Assistant Commonwealth's Attorney Cynthia Murray attributed his crime to pure greed, Kurt's not wanting to pay alimony and child support while expecting to inherit everything, including the house, if Jane Kroboth were dead before the divorce was final. In the prosecutor's words, quote, This was a crime of greed, avarice, selfishness, and callous disregard for human life. Unquote. In response, David Heilberg, Kurt's attorney, argued that, quote, It takes two people to create that kind of animosity implying that Jane was somehow at least partly to blame for the situation leading to the attempt on her life. The court heard about three hours of testimony from witnesses prior to passing sentence. When Jane Crowbuth took the stand, she described the enormous emotional toll of the whole ordeal, even while experiencing what she called deep deep sorrow for the terrible waste of Kurt's life. She explained that she'd experienced foreboding that Kurt would try to kill her for over a year prior to the actual deed, and that now she was utterly consumed by fear that he would, quote, try to finish the job upon his release. Kurt's lawyer challenged her under cross-examination he brought up the lawsuit Jane had filed against Kurt. You weren't too afraid to file a $750,000 suit, he asked. Jane maintained her composure and calmly responded with reference to all her expenses, including for the two children, while insisting that she would not allow the man who had tried to murder her to control her life even while she reasonably feared a possible future assault by the same man who had tried to kill her. Among those present in the courtroom were Kurt's parents, Harvey and Alice Kroboth. This happened to be the month of their 56th wedding anniversary. Both had been utterly devastated by the actions of the son whom they knew as so loving and considerate. Harvey Crowbuth was 80 years old at the time. Born in Milwaukee, he had served in the Pacific Theater in World War II, followed by a stint in the Marine Corps after the war was over. He later studied commercial art 
under the GI Bill and ended up working for the newspaper in Milwaukee in the copy service department. He stayed at the Milwaukee Journal for almost 30 years, retiring as promotion manager for the newspaper. But it was 77-year-old Alice Kroboth who had stayed home to raise both Kurt and his sister Kathleen, who took the stand to testify for her son. She explained the, quote, absolute shock she and her husband had experienced and described the Kurt they knew as intelligent, generous, and caring, a model family man and member of the community. His deed was entirely at odds with his character, she testified. Perhaps the most unusual testimony was offered by Pastor Paul Zimmer from the Lutheran Church in Richmond, Virginia. Like Kurt, he was originally from Wisconsin. Pastor Zimmer had visited Kurt in jail on multiple occasions and testified that he had become convinced of Kurt's, quote, remorse and regret over his actions. The striking part came when the pastor said the following, and I quote, It would not surprise me if, within a year, I might be able to recommend Kurt for a leadership position in our congregation. After all the other witnesses, Kurt Kroboth was given the chance to speak. Referring to Jane, Kurt himself described, quote, how deeply sorry I am for all the torment I've caused her, unquote. But he also explained that Jane needed to get past it all because the two of them now shared so-called common goals, among them to, quote, reestablish my business so I can support my children, unquote. Although seeming on the one hand to blame the stress and anxiety of the family situation for his actions, Kurt did acknowledge that while it would, quote, feel better for me if I could attribute my actions to undiagnosed depression or to the stress of my divorce, there is something fundamental in me that was responsible. But he suggested that he had learned a lot about himself after spending a year and a half in jail waiting to be sentenced, including the realization that, quote, I have to find the way myself. I didn't know enough to look for help when I needed it. Perhaps this was his way of saying that his attempt at killing his wife was really just a cry for help. Though not clear what the judge thought of this, the press and average citizens would find it appalling. When all was said and done, Judge Shelton announced his decision on that same day May 9, 2006. Kurt Kroboth was sentenced to 45 years in prison with 35 years suspended. For those not quick with arithmetic, that's a total sentence of 10 years for attempted murder and breaking and entering with intent to murder. He was also ordered to pay restitution and not to have contact with his wife upon release from prison. 
Cynthia Murray, the prosecutor, did not exactly express disappointment with the result. She said, quote, We asked for a higher sentence, but we do feel as though Judge Shelton was very considerate of all of the evidence that was presented to him today, and that he came to a fair and reasonable sentence for Kurt Krobuch. It was barely three weeks later, however, that Judge Shelton realized he had made a mistake. The 45-year sentence was longer than allowed by statute, which set a maximum of 10 years. Even with the 35 years suspended, the judge had to have a do-over. So he issued a new sentence on May 30. This time, it was 10 years, with three suspended for a total of seven years. With the possibility of parole, when Kurt was sentenced to prison in 2006, it was possible he could get out as early as 2011. In the next and final episode of the Chloroform Capers, we'll see what happened with Kurt Kroboff and follow some new twists in his life. We'll also check back in with Mark Weiner to see if questions being raised about his conviction had any effect. Among other issues, having seen what chloroform failed to do to Jane Kroboth, we'll take a look at whether or not, as suggested by Dr. Baker, Chelsea Steiniger's story of being rendered unconscious was a lie or could perhaps be reasonably explained. And we'll see if any of this persuaded Judge Cheryl Higgins, or anyone else in the judicial system, to take any action. Finally, we'll tie up loose ends and see what became of all the major characters in the two criminal proceedings. Be sure to check out Episode 5 of the Chloroform Capers, Damaged Lives. The Chloroform Capers is a production of True Suspense Podcasts, written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions.